This is CliffCentral.com. Good evening. Welcome to the Country Duty Show on CliffCentral.com. My name is Dumisole. My handle is at Dumisole on Twitter. Good evening, team. Thank you very much for joining us tonight. Uh, my name is Katleho and my handle is at handful underscore K. Well, well, well. Um, this happens to be our last show for 2017. I know we've just been on air three times, but we are of the view that 2018 is going to, is going to be very interesting. What would our show be without discussing the ANC elective conference? We've seen the drama. We've seen the alleged court battles, a unity candidate emerging, some betrayal discussions, and who knew? what ultimately this meant other than a non-Zuma presidency. To discuss this on our show, we have Kaya Sitole, a social commentator who will discuss some of the highlights and the key issues. Hi Kaya, how are you? I'm good. Hello. Hi Kaya, how are you? Hi, I'm good. Can you hear me? I can. Can you hear me? I keep losing you, but yeah, I can hear you now. All right. Um, welcome to the Country Duty Show on Cliff Central. Okay. Yeah, Thank you um, very much. Sure. I know you've been busy throughout the week. I mean, we've seen you on all these um, stations, and you probably are tired. But, you know, yeah, we I thought think. that we'd have you on the show just to take us through as to some of the highlights. Yes, it would have been great to have you on the show, but I know you're still wrapping up things at the NASDAQ Center there. Yeah, but thanks for the invitation. Great stuff. So, um, we found ourselves with CR17. Perhaps as a start, let's just discuss how did you see these campaigns, um, CR17's campaigns and NDZ campaigns? Do you think... You know, they, they hit the right spots and were they talking to the ordinary South African or was it meant to be an internal type of campaign? Okay. So the way I analyze uh, the two campaigns is that they were quite different yeah. in that I think Cyril Ramaphosa ran a more public public campaign than NDZ did. So he was not only talking to the branches internally, but he was also communicating to the public at large, what exactly it is that was trying to achieve. So, of course, when his campaign had the greater media and public visibility, people knew exactly what it is that he was trying to do. Yeah. And I think what that did is that it simply elevated his campaign into the public consciousness better than what was going to campaign did. So I think that was the one condition. On her side, she really just focused all her energy in dealing with just the internal missionary of the ANC politics. Yeah. So she was giving brand visits, you know, uh, brand engagement. So, of course, that also was quite successful, as you can see now that she did actually get a lot of, you know, delegates on the side. So I think what they did is that they obviously understood what their stakes were. She doesn't believe that her friends within the media profile and engaging with the media. But, of course, the media has been quite hostile to her, yes. at least in her eyes. So she simply then decision to say, I'll focus on what I can do best and not have to worry about the externalities. Obviously, she was heavily criticized for that. So a lot of people saw her as being very evasive and very distant and aloof. But I suppose that she had to play the game the, day, the way she, she, she understood it best. No, I, I hear you and I agree with you. Um, there was an opportunity for her to, you know, embrace and not necessarily be friends with the media, but at least let them in. And I think given, you know, where, where we find ourselves, um, that opportunity was gone and she could have embraced it. Um, let's just fast forward to, to where we are. Um, you know, days leading up to the, um, elections and, and, and the voting. What do you think? The problems were insofar as, you know, logistics and communications were, um, because you'd have okay. noted. Okay. So I think, of course, the process of running a content of this nation is always going to be a logistical item that one needs to manage. So what you saw here is that it seems to be logistics. Uh, it's kind of a very good job of just trying to get everything done in order. Those of us that had to come and get our education, that was done with no issues whatsoever. And even when we arrived here at the conference, we sort of see that at least the logistical component of ANC 
services it will stop. We haven't had any complaints, but people not perhaps been able to access venues that they need to access or any other issues in the nation. So I think that just basically it was a very well-managed um, uh, uh, operation politically, though it was a bit of a different nightmare because what you see is that the political logistics were fundamentally different. Yeah. People arrived here and then there was a special NEC meeting that had to take because they had delegates who arrived who were not uh, supposed to be here either yes. because their branches were not under to them to do so or because various court cases were said that these people shouldn't go there. So I think, you know, in the operational logistics, things went very well, but in the political logistics, it was much less successful. Indeed. Uh, I mean, on your point regarding the, the court applications, I mean, there were, I think, three provinces that were ultimately impacted by this. Do you think they may have an, you know, um, impact or could have had an impact insofar as how this turned out for both candidates? Yeah. Well, of course, the key branches that really were impacted by the court cases are the ones whose court cases started early. And yeah. sometimes this really falls down to a matter of timing. So if you look at the case of Ellie and the three state court cases, the agreed parties that took either their, uh, their provincial executive committee or their provincial general council to court started the process much earlier, while the other provinces were much late into the process. So those that only approached the court on Friday, maybe the day before the conference, would be able to get an initial order that says there is a problem here. But of course, you've got the right to appeal. And by the time a person does an appeal, it means that the original decision is in suspended, and those people can still show up at the conference. So, so that is the essential difference that happens when you come in right. The key issue, of course, is that the free state, for the second conference in the world, arrives here, and its provincial executive committee, which is really the public leadership structure, does not allow to vote. Yes. Five years ago, the constitutional court actually barred them from voting because of the irregularity that are associated with how it is essentially run this provincial conference um, and that has led to the leadership. Five years later, we have a different problem. Now, the one interesting thing is that the common denominator between those two decisions is, of course, the chairperson of the free state, Mr. A. Makashule, who is now the Secretary General of the ANC. Yeah. On the other side, is that the case of every delegation itself, which has really had a long, drawn-out internal civil war that essentially started sometime after 2014 yes. and has really had various isolations. And the ultimate consequence of that is that a couple of months ago, the then existing provincial executive committee was actually nullified by the court. But then, of course, they appealed. And generally, when you appeal, it means that this decision is suspended. So yeah. then they could still participate as a executive committee, which is still run the problem. So then the, 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 the other factions then went to court and then sought a declaration that these guys should not actually be allowed to do anything pending the appeal. So then by the time they arrived here in Johannesburg, they actually had no political standing, even though they were leading the biggest delegation to the conference. So those are the key political logistics that really, yeah, I think hampered the progress of this conference. Yeah. Whether it then had a material impact on the ultimate um, voting pattern, it's something that's very difficult to articulate because, of course, these are all city ballots. Certainly. And remember, even before people get here, they don't really do nominations on an individual basis. It is done on a branch basis. Certainly. So you can't necessarily simply say that if um, Mr. Zivalala, for example, was for the branch XYZ, and then he gets nullified, he's how he would have voted. Some people obviously make that pronouncement. Um, um, it's very clear before we get to conference, so for those you can really speculate. But mm. for the rest of them, it's not really a linear relationship to understand that if you expand the provincial executive committee, what is the ultimate impact? We might suspect that there would have voted a particular candidate, but of course that's not any sort of interest time when you're working on the basis of the city balance. Yeah. Kaya, we, we seem to be having a bit of a problem with, with your line. Um, so I'm just going to break for an ad and tie you on a different line that's probably more audible and stuff. Do you mind just holding, okay. please? That's fine. Great stuff. Thanks. Good evening, um, 
contributing listeners. Thank you for staying on. We are currently discussing the ANC 54th um, conference with Kaya Sitole. We have him back online. Please send us your questions on the WhatsApp line 079-748-2090 or call us in on studio on 0861-555-189. You can also send your tweets through to us on at handful underscore K or at Dumisole and, and hashtag country duty. Great stuff. Kyle, welcome back. Can you hear me? Thank you. Yes, I can hear you. Great stuff. This is a much better line. Yes, um, okay. we just finished discussing the possible impact on, on the courts and, and ultimately whether it did have an impact or not. Um, and, and I agree with your analysis, really, that you know the people who initially initiated it, they were more... Um, likely to to arrive to a different outcome now let's just talk about the election results um yeah in your view was this an expected outcome or it took people by surprise <laughs> yeah this was definitely not the expected outcome and i've been referring to it as accidental unity <laughs> so the key issue here is that the two late that you started with the two factions were were both actually quite um weak in my view so if you look, for example, on the Ramaphosa slate of the six positions that he had then, you could say that there were probably about two strong candidates and the rest were really marginal. So, for example, he himself, of course, would be the strongest link in that particular slate. And I would say that um, Lindy Sisulin, when he eventually did join that particular slate, was a strong candidate to have them. But if you then look at perhaps the position of Secretary General, he had uh, Sengen Kunu running in that particular position. Now, Sengen Kunu is in a very difficult space because he is, of course, on the um, exiled uh, faction of KZN. So even by the time you get here, you got the impression that the delegates from KZN that did make it to this conference were, of course, from the slate that actually sent him and his people into exile, which was the basis of the court case in KZN, which also then led to the nullification of the guys that have exiled him. So I didn't feel that he brought enough candidates onto the ticket to warrant his inclusion there. And also, if you really look at Sengen Kunu's political uh, trajectory, yeah. he is the type of guy that's quite reserved, works very well on the ground, and, you know, just really just goes about his business in a very quiet and very dignified manner. And I'm not particularly sure if the position of Secretary General for the entire party is something that would have fit well with him. So that was the one um, a possible uh, weakness that I identified in the Ramaphosa state. Yeah. And I thought that if he had looked for someone in KZN with really that long political, uh, the big political clout, perhaps William Keith would have been an alternative there. You, you so think so, I mean, yeah. I mean but, really, why not a Peggy Taylor, for example? <laughs> Peggy Taylor <laughs> tends to be a rather polarizing figure in KZN business uh, circles. And I say political circles. And also do keep in mind that um, the one key aspect of the Ramaphosa campaign was the whole anti-corruption drive. Yes. Now, all of us do remember that Baby Taylor was actually fired as the minister of, I believe, the police due to the, the, uh, the, the irregularity. Scandal. Yes. So you probably wouldn't want to add him onto your ticket and be running on an anti-corruption drive. So you want him to do the work for you, but you can't possibly add him to your ticket because then it starts discrediting it. So I think that's why he was not uh, um, uh, considered for that particular position. The other big issue with the uh, Ramaphosa slate was the identity of the preferred Deputy Secretary General. So Zingi Salosi is, of course, quite well known in society and labor circles. Indeed. But by the time that added onto the slate, a lot of the uh, candidates, or well, the delegates that ended up here, really didn't have a very intimate understanding of who she is. Yeah. So she suffered from a visibility crisis, and I felt that there were enough, um, you know, high-profile politicians within the ANC who are also part of the labor movement that he could have added onto the state if he wanted to really embrace the labor um, uh, uh, movement that had really been exiled under Jacob Zuma. Yeah. So I felt that those types of weaknesses were something that he could have done better on his particular place. And also the key issue here is that it then turned out that, of course, Wendy Salosi, even though Zuma Maposa won the election, she was far behind Jesse Duarte. And I think it was just really the visibility that won it uh, for Jesse Duarte rather than for Zuma Salosi. 
Yeah. The question of Paul Masatide. Paul Masatide was known as a floating candidate until the very last moment, so he could have chosen other place. Mm-hmm. And I think what was quite important here is that, of course, the housing um, province had decided to get from a person and obviously with the understanding that they could get their men onto the ticket. So that was the sort of post trading that he was involved in. I thought he was a very strong candidate on the Ramaphosa stage because really the position of Treasurer General requires someone who has the ability to navigate uh, one way or another through business and political circles. And I think on the basis of what uh, the current political status quo is, he's a guy that had the capacity to do that. So those are the issues on the Ramaphosa slate. Yes. On the other slate, though, because that's a slate that's very, very difficult for a lot of us to understand. So I thought that she had probably three summer weaknesses. And the key issue is that her slate was really made up of three individuals. And then the rest were, if you want to call that, just, um, they came as a package because you needed to pick people. Yes. So, of course, the basis of a campaign was that you needed to secure the biggest um, uh, province, which was President and so then she represents the President of uh, a faction within that particular um, alliance. And then, of course, there were the other two provinces that had very big delegations that you wanted to have on your side, yeah. that was Bumalanga and the Free State. So that explains why Mabuza and Mahashule were on the slate. What she then did is that for the rest of the three positions, it appears that she simply didn't pay attention to going out and sourcing people who might even give her some clout in the provinces that didn't necessarily nominate her. Yeah. So, for example, you had Natan Turka on the slate, who, in my view, added absolutely nothing new to the slate. There wasn't really the idea that he was bringing additional delegates to the state. And in my view, he was always going to be the sacrificial lamb if anything needed to be done to bolster the state. And it turned out that she did, actually, the day before the conference. She did make an approach to William Keyes and ask him if he'd be willing to join the state as chairperson, but by that time, really, it decided otherwise. So Nathan Petal was probably someone that she shouldn't have had in the first stage. He didn't bring anything. Um, to her slate. The so, secondary um, 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 uh, consideration related yes. to the position of Treasurer General. So she had chosen Maite Nguana Mashabane, who's real. Um, <laughs> it was a very. So that, yeah, it was a quite say, an interesting yeah. uh, choice in my view, but yeah, hey, the, it is what it the, is. The clo- yeah, the closest you can get to explaining it is that Maite Nguana Mashabane is the Treasurer General of the ANC Women's League. But that's not the type of thing that you needed in this place because it then turns out that as we were listening to the Treasurer General's um, report um, this week is that the NC Women's League is actually running deficits. So they're technically bankrupt. So the fact that Maite is the Treasurer of the NC Women's League it's, probably it's didn't help on the place anyway. So I still felt that she could have found someone with much stronger, um, mm-hmm. you know, grassroots um, credential, someone who can bring either a region or perhaps a significant section of a province onto her slate. Yeah. And then the last one also was, was Jesse Duarte. Now, it's very difficult for some of us to understand why she would have had Jesse Duarte there, because Jesse Duarte doesn't also have a primary constituency that she can hold, call her own. She's not from the labor movement. She doesn't come from a province that perhaps would have said, oh, there's a person being added into the slate. So those three, for me, really became the baggage on her slate yeah. that she could have surely replaced with people who brought her at least one or two additional regions, one or two additional branches of particular size that would have both set the slate. So I think her slate was very weak, perhaps even weaker than the Ramaphosa slate. The only positive thing about her slate is the fact that it actually had three women on it. This is not now, what I wanted to... To, to ask yeah. that surely if, if you had to contrast it with your um, Ramaphosa type of slate, you know, um, an NDZ type of slate was really balanced from a female and, and, and gender uh, yeah. perspective and, and empowerment. Whether yeah. Um, yeah. It, it added value insofar as, you know, abilities and, and, and the likes, that's totally yeah. different. And, and, and I hear you and, and I agree with your views insofar as some of the issues are concerned with the candidates. So the bizarre thing, of course, is that she has this slate that has three women. And remember, the concept of gender parity has been essential to ANC conference and policy discussions of any other matter. Indeed. This is something that Balega Bete has been championing since 1991 at the Durban conference, yeah. the issue of gender parity. 
The problem is that even though she had this agreement, she never ever mentioned it. This is as, the thing. As, as a rallying point throughout her campaign. Yeah. So you only have to look at the session and say, oh, by the way, there are three women there. So it was something that she could have used in order to say, look, actually on my slate, I am pursuing something that the ANC has, has always struggled with, this concept of gender parity. That never came out in the conversation. But remember, the reason it never came out is that she had this idea that she wasn't going to engage with the media anyway. So then there was no, there was no platform to, to for her to actually share, yeah, to ventilate the fact that actually look at the power of my place. Yeah. So I think the way she executed on the campaign leaves a lot to be desired. Yeah, but surely insofar as gender parity and the likes are concerned, um, the likes of the ANC Women's League um, and, and some of the backers, you know, they could have taken opportunity and said, listen, in, in our campaign or, or, or in our slate, we do have these seasoned uh, politicians who happen to be female and, and you know, yeah. and punt them. Surely they also failed insofar as elevating them and ensuring an NTZ type of victory to an extent? Yeah, so the one thing that one has to criticize the women's league for is obviously the fact that their communication is remarkably poor. Yeah. So it was only yesterday at the press conference where Batabele Damini was actually now actually explaining to us really why they backed the Nkosazana Damini slate and then she's saying, look, actually we had deliberations earlier on in the year about the fact that we wanted to choose and back a woman candidate. There were a few names on the ballot uh, on, the, sorry, on the original list I think she mentioned that there are seven names that they considered, and then somehow they then decided that they wanted to back this one candidate. The problem that then came out is that throughout the year, they never actually spoke about the other two candidates. As yeah. I said, they simply became the baggage that everybody forgot about. So they went on every single platform and simply mentioned the one candidate that they were punting. Of course, yeah. what they simply did is that they took the ultimate gamble and say, this is the candidate that must win in order for the other two to come on board. So let us simply talk about this one candidate. And that inability to articulate that they were actually pushing for something so groundbreaking yeah. actually cost them a lot. And I suspect it's really because of the level of communication skills that simply remains a massive problem in the Women's League. So a big opportunity was lost there also. Certainly. So, so Kaya, if you look at um, you know what, what's coming out on Twitter, um, Neom Da at Neom Da says that the ANC has a very difficult issue to resolve. If you look at what happened at the conference, they were not able to deal with some of the issues, the press conference and the spinning. Um, this actually comes from Polokwane, and it hasn't been dealt with properly, and we find ourselves in this, and it's quite historical to a certain extent. Do you do you agree with him, or do you think it's it's he's totally um, missing the point? Look, the ANC definitely still suffers from the scars of Polokwane, and I think even if you looking at the whole question of whether the ANC will ever have a woman leader. In 2007, Gosazana actually ran for the position of deputy president. But then again, she was on the wrong side because she was paired with Kabumbegi, who was pursuing a very controversial third term. And the ANC at that stage was going to reject anything that was associated with the idea of Kabumbegi running for a third term. So yeah. it didn't matter what the agenda of the other candidates on the slate was. So even the Women's League was actually on the Jacob Lima side because ideologically, or at least as a matter of principle, they simply did not want to entertain a third term. So she became the casualty of the person with whom she associated herself with in the political conference, which, of course, was a political decision that she had taken, and she had to live with it. So now we've arrived 10 years later, and she's now saying, okay, let me run on my own as a female candidate. But then again, 10 years later, she has crossed over from one state to the other. In 2007, she was on the anti-Jacob Lima side, in 2017, she's associated with the Jacob Lima Brigade. And even that cost her because 10 years later, people now don't want anything to ever associate yeah. the ANC with Jacob Lima. So for some odd reason, she has just been a victim of her timing. And I think she will probably reflect on this later on in life and say, yeah, what if, if I'd been this. on this side Absolutely. 10 years ago, where would we be now? But unfortunately, she'll never get a chance to atone for that. That, that's the thing. Um, if we move quickly to, to the top six, I know that you, you have um, other commitments and you have to go and wrap up. Um, firstly, yeah. you, you spoke about um, you know, the 
Ramaphosa campaign being a no-nonsense, corrupt, you know, free type of, yeah. um, you know, uh, campaign. But look at yeah. what he ultimately got um, from a credibility perspective. You ace Mahashule, for example, mm-hmm. the allegations that have been leveled against um, Jesse Duarte's son and stuff like that. Surely... Yeah puts a spanner in the works to a certain extent and and do you think he'll be able to take um, a proper approach and deal with what he now has inherited from the delegation um, and, and, and what people have voted for or he's in a catch-22? Look, the moment, I mean, I was uh, just that next to the stage when he actually uh, walked up to accept, uh, you know, a victory as president of the ANC and, you know, for that one or two moments when he was there on his own, he had this massive personal victory that he had finally ascended to the office that he has desired ever since he really became involved in politics. So this one moment, he had this massive political victory. And then a few seconds later, when Mabuza emerged, I looked at it and I said, oh, wow, this man has scored a massive personal victory but inherited a huge political defeat. This is not what Cyril Ramaphosa wanted. Because the people that he has ended up with are essentially the guys against whom he had been rallying to say the other side of the table has got these corrupt individuals. Of course, he implied it by simply saying, I'm running on the anti-corruption campaign. And of course, one has to then assume it because he's saying that the guys on the other side have got these corruption allegations. So for for him to then end up with not one, not two, (laughs) but three people that he regards as relatively corrupt is the biggest political defeat for him. In fact, the best thing that could have happened for him is for him to end up with Bostazana. If he was ever going to inherit someone from the other side of the table, she is, of course, the only one who's essentially corrupt free (laughs) in that particular state. So that's what he would have wished for. And unfortunately, this is what happened. But but then, surely... You know, um, my colleague wants to ask you a question, and I think it's probably what what I'll be yeah. taking from. So, Kaya, I just wanted to, like, coming from that corruption question that most yeah. of the NEC, uh, top six in the NEC right now are corrupt people, do you think that ANC is capable of producing scandal-free leaders? Because every one of them seems to have, or any people in leadership positions always seem to have yeah. a scandal yeah. behind them. No, the ANC definitely is capable of producing leaders who are very ethical. I mean, one example is in the school who has managed to stay in government for over four parliamentary terms without even a hint of corruption being associated with her. So, of course, the possibility exists. The reality here is that in most instances, the people that end up having the political clout to either control a province or to run, you know, a significant delegation that they can bring to conference, then end up being, you know, the guys like David Mabuza, who, of course, then says, look, if I'm ever going to run a province like Gumalanga for such a long period of time and be able to ensure that everyone does exactly what I need to do, yeah. I'm not going to play the game in a clean way. Similarly, with Esma Khashoggi, I mean, he's been running the ANC since 1992 in the free state. Yep. So that, that, you know, that 25-year time frame in which he has taken time to build his political muscle has come with a lot of controversial and scandal, uh, scandalous decisions that is made. So I don't think the ANC itself is incapable of producing good ethical leaders. It just turns out that the type of people that unfortunately tend to deliver big delegations and conferences are the ones that are associated with some form of scandal or the other. And, and that's what, very unfortunate. Um, sorry, yeah, and very, where do you, where, what's your uh, viewpoint on the 68 missing Nasdaq votes? Um, would they make it, would, would, would like including them or excluding them, is that a matter of ethics or participation and inclusion? Like Dumi asked this question earlier on today on Twitter as well um, about yeah. whether the, the, the inclusion or exclusion or whatever, is it about okay. a matter of rights participation of the... Mm-hmm. Yeah, so the, the, the question of 68 remains really, really difficult to explain because remarkably, the ANC still hasn't said a single thing about it. Yeah. The issue seems to have been that when the results were released, the first thing that was mentioned is that of all the candidates that were eligible to vote, which were 4,776, 68 of them hadn't voted. At least that was the impression that was given to us by the Electoral Commission. They simply said 4,708 people voted, and the implication is that 68 people didn't vote. Then they proceeded to read the results based on the people that had voted. So for all of us, that was an issue. You just assumed that the turnout was less than 100%. Yeah. It only then came through yesterday that actually, 
people may not have necessarily not voted at all. They might have voted, but then their votes were not included in the final tally. The problem here is that the Electoral Commission should have mentioned that when we got to the plenary and they were releasing the results. Because it's a type of information that is so critical, you can't not mention it. It is also quite important to highlight that one of the positions that was being contested, the position of Secretary General, yes. the guy that ended up winning it only had a margin of 24 votes. So if a guy is only losing by 24 votes, being Tendon and there's an envelope sitting in the room with 68 ballots that haven't been looked at, you would have assumed that his people would have said, we're only 24 votes behind. Yes. 58 is greater than 24, let us open the envelope. So for me, it was a no-brainer. So when the story started coming out yesterday, I just assumed it was fake news because I couldn't imagine (laughs) how they had let that slide. It just made no sense whatsoever. And it was also quite bizarre that when the results were released, Sengum Kunu seemed to have had the impression that he had won. So he actually started walking towards the stage when he realized (laughs) that he hadn't won. So maybe his people had informed him that on the basis of our calculations, he won. But then it turned out that that wasn't the case. So we still have this bizarre problem where the ANC still hasn't said a single thing about the 68. There's been a lot of speculation, of course. So we've heard that some people have gone and launched a court case to say we want the 68 ballots to be open. But the issue here is that it doesn't matter what's in that envelope. The question that needs to be resolved is the question of why was there a separate envelope to begin with. So for me, whatever's in the envelope is completely irrelevant because you're going to have to open the envelope as long as you can explain the delegates here why there was a need to separate the envelope in the first place. Yeah, I agree. It does seem very suspect. But I mean, I'm pretty sure there are processes that need to be followed because earlier on there were people who were saying that as long as they had followed the the procedures for laying a complaint against the numbers that are outstanding, then everything should be fine. So what exactly are the procedures that should be in place in situations like this? Our conference is a very wonderful space to be in because the one thing that happens then is that you arrive on day one of the conference and the ANC essentially has a leadership structure made up of 86 people. There's always the top six leaders and then 80 other people make up the National Executive Committee. So when you arrive on day one, those 86 people all sit on stage as the official leadership collective of the ANC. What then happens is that as soon as they're on stage, then there emerges a new structure altogether, a structure that only exists for a five-day period and this is a structure that we call the steering committee. So the purpose of the steering committee is to then manage the transition from one leadership collective to the other. So as soon as the steering committee is essentially in place, then you can actually release the 86 um, existing members of their leadership role. But in order not to create a vacuum, the powers then move on to the steering committee. Yeah. And then they obviously have to oversee the processes of the election until there is another new 86-person collective. When that 86-person collective exists, then the steering committee itself disappears, and then it hands over power to the new 86. So that's how the process was shared. So what happens here is that whenever there is a dispute, in any, at any other point in time in the ANC, the NEC is the ultimate authority. So when you get here and the NEC is disbanded and you only have the steering committee, the steering committee is then assumed to be the ultimate authority that can adjudicate some matters. So, of course, then the steering committee is the one that has to then try and figure out what to do with this particular ballot. They started meeting yesterday, and we are not particularly sure what really they debated and what they deliberated on because they've been completely silent about it. So the way I understand it is that whoever is agreed would have had to approach the steering committee, and the steering committee makes a decision. If that person is unhappy with the decision of the steering committee, then they would have had to bring it to the entire plenary, which is what we call the entire assembly, when everybody's in there. So they had to bring it there, and if they don't get any relief out of that, then they can say legally they've exhausted all internal remedies within the ANC, and then they can approach the court, which are then allowed to intervene only once a person is exhausted internal remedies of the ANC. So that is actually how the process is supposed to have worked. Yeah, that's quite helpful. And I think, you know, one of the people um, of our listeners asked that question on WhatsApp in so far as how do we deal with it? And, and uh, they call it the NAS 
um, REC um, 68 and, and what it means. And I think you've set out properly. Now, if one moves to the two centers of power, we now know that Ramaphosa has an ANC president and um, Jacob Zuma is the president of the country. And, and with what we've seen from an ANC perspective, that the ANC president becomes the president of the country, how do you think this conundrum will be resolved? And, and do you actually see um, a situation where Zuma may be asked to step down? This takes us back to Pulukwane all over again, does it not? Yeah. Because back in 2007, Thabo yes. was of the opinion that he could carry on being president of the ANC even if somebody else became president of the country. Yes. So the theory around two centers of power was actually one of the major issues that was being deliberated on 10 years ago when Pulukwane happened. Yeah. So Thabo thought there was nothing wrong with having one person being an ANC president and a completely separate person being uh, the president of the country. So the people that disagreed with him simply said, we do not want two centers of power because that is going to be, you know, destabilize the government. That's why they then said, Habum Begin must go so that Jacob Zuma can be the president of the ANC and the president of the country. So this is a theory that they advocated for 10 years ago. So now what happens is that, unfortunately, the ANC's electoral cycle always means that you're going to have an ANC election at least 18 to 24 months before a general election. Yeah. So there's always going to be that 18 to 24 month window period where technically there is a different president of the party and a different president of the country at large. Now, the issue here is that normally, if this was a political party where everybody was sort of on the same page, those people would be able to work together anyway during that 18 month period. Yeah. But as we've seen since 2007, this elected conferences tend to be so toxic and yeah. so divisive that people that tend to emerge hardly ever can get along. So we saw that in 2007, the mood was so completely untenable, Habombegi had to vacate his seat as the head of government because Jacob Zuma simply couldn't work with him when Jacob was the head of the party and Jacob was the head of, uh, and Habom was the head of government. So the issue here is, do we think that Ramaphosa can actually be comfortable with being the president of the ANC and having someone else being president of the country. And given the nature of what has happened, especially in the past 12 months on the electoral campaign, I do not imagine that that relationship would be able to be uh, to, to materialize. Yeah. No, I'm with you, and I totally agree with you. Um, I think my colleague has a question so, for you. Yeah, hi, Kaya. Just before we close off and wrap up, there's one thing I want to take you back to the um, steering committee. Um, I yeah. understand that Nakashule is one of the people on the steering committee. Doesn't that like, raise a conflict of interest? When... Uh, <laughs> it's actually quite bizarre. Nakashule is not part of the steering committee. But the reason it's not part of the steering committee has got nothing to do with this particular content. Mm-hmm. So the steering committee itself is essentially headed by the incumbent secretary general. So okay. when you arrive, because it takes over as soon as you get here, the um, secretary general at that point in time, in this case, Gwede Mantashe, is the head of the steering committee. And then the steering committee is then made up of additional members, provincial secretaries, and all those people. Right. Now, unfortunately, in the case of the free state, the entire leadership structure of the free state was deemed illegal by the court. So Ishma Khashule is not part of the steering committee simply because the court said he cannot be part of anything that happens here. In fact, he technically arrived here as a non-voting delegate. He was just as useful as, as myself in arriving at this particular conference. So Ishma Khashule is not part of the steering committee simply because even if the rules allowed for the chair of a province to be part of a steering committee, he himself does not enjoy that status anymore. Okay. So he's not part of the steering committee at all. And if he was part of the steering committee for some reason or the other, then I suppose then they would have probably said, since you're an affected person, you need to Just bring in an alternate from the free state Indeed. to represent your interest here because that's the best way to manage conflict. Thank you for clarifying. Um, Great stuff. Kaya, just one last thing um, from our side um, before you go. Um, Given that now we have this top six, um, you know, ultimately the NEC is coming and stuff, what do you think will be Cyril's first order of business? Um, 
And please bear in mind his campaign of no nonsense. We know that the court had directed him to appoint yeah. an NDDP. We know that amongst other things that he, you know, he faced himself with um, other things. And, and, and bear that in mind also if you look at um, these markets, you know, we have this rand that goes with, with the flow. Um, when it's done yeah. off, suddenly it, it, it's chilled and it's not taking a view. But when you have a Jacob Zuma or a Cyril, it, it, it does wonders, which which is very unfortunate. But as as a layman um, who's not you know averse with the markets, but given your 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 expertise and stuff, what, what do you make of all of this? What does it mean for your um, you know fees commission report that Zuma said? Listen, implement. Um, where will we find this money? What does this mean for the men on the street? I mean, one of the policy resolutions was the legalization of sex workers. You know, does that mean that the people sitting at at, at Hillbrow, or it's going to be a legislated type of thing where the pe- the police won't now arrest because this is now envisaged and it's championed? I think people on the ground definitely need some views. They need guidance. If it's really going to go back to the drawing board, uh, twenty nineteen is just around the corner. Uh, what, what do you make of all of this? And with the opposition that are sitting, you know, EFF, DA, UDM, they're yeah. really just waiting for action. And it's either going to be a make it or break it for Cyril if he's still going to apply his mind like someone that we won't mention. So, interestingly, Jacob Zimmer's motorcade does our job passing right now. You asked a lot of interesting questions. <laughs> the first order of business uh, for Cyril Maposa is, of course, the January 8th statement. Yeah. And at that particular statement, there will be a lot of expectations. Um, internally within the party and across society at large, because really it will be the first time that he has had time to synthesize the fact that he's now the president of the ANC and then sort of draft a roadmap towards exactly how he wants to govern the ANC. His first speech will be delivered in a couple of hours tonight, but of course that speech itself comes at a very delicate time because even right now he doesn't know who his ANC is going to be. So it's really just a speech that is aimed at closing conference but won't have the same details and really the same thought-out um, modalities on what he wants to do as the January 8th statement. So that is the sort of business to then try and identify how he wants to position his presidency um, uh, um, uh, 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 for the next 18 months. The important thing, of course, is that the secondary question will then be the question of drafting the manifesto for the 2019 general election. So that becomes his second biggest task. The third one... I suppose, will be the question of what is to be done with the president, which is Jacob Zuma. So that will really be influenced by what you're about to see over the next 45 minutes to an hour when we get the details of who makes up the new National Executive Committee because that is the, that, that is the authority that has the capacity to then make a decision regarding Jacob Zuma. So as far as I'm looking at it, it's that January 8th to think about, start thinking about the manifesto for the general election, and then really work out what he and his National Executive Committee want to do about President Jacob Zuma. There are, of course, the additional problems that have been created this week alone. As you mentioned, Jacob Zuma has decided that free higher education must be implemented. Now, Jacob Zuma said that in his capacity as the president of the ANC. And when he said that, he was simply living up to an existing policy position, to existing resolutions of ANC. So he was perfectly correct in executing on that. Yeah. The problem, of course, is that now as a head of government, he then has to implement it. So as the head of the ANC, he simply says, we're going to do it. As a head of government, he has to find the money and make it happen. And of course, Cyril Maposa is probably the one person within government who probably has got a better um, you know, grasp of what the financial issues are. So he probably has to then help Jacob Zuma roll out this education plan. So I think they sort of are still stuck with each other, at least for the next 18 months unless it is recalled. There are, of course, some interesting developments that have been today. As you mentioned earlier, the ANC has finally decided that they're going to push forward for the bill that decriminalizes sex work. And this is something that a lot of people, especially in the Women's League, have been advocating for for a while. So I do believe it's probably the most important policy proposal that we are emerging from this consensus. So those are the types of issues that you now need to navigate. The question of how the market responds to it, they will probably give him, um, you know, a few months to get his, um, to, you know, to settle down and then say, we will trust you unless, of course, something keeps happening that you're uncomfortable with. Mm-hmm. And the reality here is that what makes markets uncomfortable 
is really the ability of Jacob Zuma to wake up in the morning, release a press statement, and say we're rolling out the education <laughs> yeah. in four weeks' time without consulting a single person. Yeah. So that is the problem. Great stuff. Thank you very much for coming on to the show. Um, as I as I said, you know, you at the policy conference and you've been in and out of interviews and the likes, but you've really provided the proper analysis and insightful one. Um, and our viewers and listeners are, are really, um, you know, um, impressed about this. Um, we wish you well. We hope that we'll be talking to you um, soon and ensure that we are aligned and more importantly, make sure that we, we, we do our country duty and ensure that we hold politicians um, and, and, and private sector accountable for, for some of these issues. Thank you very much. Cheers. Good evening, Country Duty. Thank you very much for staying with us. We are on Cliff Central. Um, our WhatsApp number is 079-748-2090. And our calls are on 0861-555189. Now, in terms of the ANC Women's Le- uh, League and where they stand and everything, right now we've noticed, we've seen how they have come out to complain about the lack of support for a female uh, presidential candidate. But it's something that actually brings to mind the fact that they themselves have been very quiet on a lot of women issues that have come across. Um, they have never really been supportive of any of the females in um, in the party itself. First, um, quick to come to mind is Dr. Makoza Kozi, uh, when she was being threatened. The first comment that came out of the ANC Women's League was that she is not a member of um, the Women's League and therefore they do not feel the need to say anything and only later after they had been pressed by people or by the public about how they cannot be so callous as a women's league they need to be supportive of women did they say that they would talk to the police about giving her vip protection but it's not it's a it's a lot of issues that come to mind that that let us think about um how quiet they have been on how silent they have been um in terms of Women's issues in South Africa, and one of the, the the after effects I think of it is that we have such a intense rape culture in South Africa. We've seen it with the issues that happened with the taxi rapes, and we've seen it with the issues that happened with the two-year-old um, uh, child in Cape Town who was raped and killed. Um, just forgot her name, Courtney in Cape Town who was raped and killed and um, by the guy. It's become such a normal thing in South Africa for rapists to just be so rampant on and get away with such issues. Um, so one of the things that we are going to be taking on in, in 2018 as country duty um, amongst, alongside with Not In My Name is the rapist in schools cult, um, attacks. So there have been quite a lot of stories that have been coming out um, this year of children being molested, children being raped by teachers, by school guards all across the country. And we're going to be starting a campaign that's going to be focusing on educating students um, as well as teachers on the recourses that is available to them as well. And um, we're also going to be going from schools around starting in Joburg and in Pretoria simply because of the size and, and numbers that we have where we're going to be talking to the school reps and everybody about um, the issues that is that surround the numbers of, of rapists in schools. So one of the things that we really are advocating for is for rapists, to, um, a, a call list, a log or a list of people who are convicted of rape or convicted of molestation of children sorry about that um and they are going to be having a, a register with the names of all the people we're going to be talking to different organizations that relate to teachings to teachers about what issues um about how they can help us with um the vetting of teachers in schools and stuff great stuff um as as Katlero has said, um, 2017 has been one of those busy years. Um, we've survived, um, in fact, not necessarily survived, but we have been 
exposed to a host of things that have caused uh, pity pities in our lives and the likes. I mean, from life as it many, we there were recalls and reshufflings every after fourth night. We we experienced, you know, um, fees must fall and. Ultimately, the the outcome, which is great, and it's attributed to the students' movement, which we ought to give praise to. More importantly, 2018, in our view, is going to present a very interesting year. Um, I think we all, as citizens, would have to come together, um, hold the powers that be to account, ensure that we 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 deal with issues. Um, we shouldn't be separating issues. Steinhoff, all of a sudden, has gone off the radar. We need to bring it back. We need to. Find a Twitter account. We need to make a hashtag, make a trend. Um, the the likes of some of the crimes being committed, where KPMG. you would find your KPMG, for example, is IRPA has, has has gone very quiet on the investigation, which they said should be their responsibility as the regulating board for accountants. And yet we've heard very little from them on any feedback of anything on the KPMG saga. So corruption cannot just be something that we take as part of life is breathing and we just sweep it sweep it under the carpet and carry on with our daily life like nothing has happened um it's it's very prevalent and it's one of those things that we see even with the um, nuclear deal um south africa is one of the like corruption yes is worldwide but south africa is one of those developing countries that really cannot afford to take on the the after effects or the knock-on effects of the financial strain that comes from corruption um, we are trying ourselves to build us up and corruption is really one of the biggest things that slows us down and throws us back under the, the underdeveloped countries that we end up in. So issues that we are going to be, that we are facing or that we are dealing with, um, really does, it doesn't help. Yeah, so we, we really ask um, you tweets to uh, engage us on social media over the um, official account at Country Duties at A. Um, we've provided our handles, suggest topics, let's work together and ensure that we make South Africa great. Because ultimately, despite the politicians, it's about us and, in, and, and ensuring that um, we do it for the next upcoming generations. We would like to wish you a happy Christmas and a prosperous new year. Please be safe on the roads and travel safely. Let's catch up on Twitter. Um, before we close, um, to the extent that we've made errors and, and the likes and offended a few people, we extend our apologies. Um, it's never intentional. We, we learn as we go and we are of the view that we can work together with you guys and let's hold on and um, strive for a better SA. Before we go, guys, in um Hindsight or following on from last week's conversation about the educational crisis, I plead to everybody who's going to be going anywhere, whether it's back home to the rural areas or you're going to be staying in Joburg or wherever, that you just take time out of your day or your week or your holiday just to encourage a child to read or to read a book to a child or have a child read a book to you so that we can just overcome this education crisis that we're currently facing. I encourage, I plead and I beg that we, we just make reading fashionable and we bring it back as a, a stable foundation for our future leaders. So thank you very much for listening in. Thank you very much for the f- support and following. And we will see you guys on the flip side of 2018. This is CliffCentral.com.